Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Department of Public Health, and welcome to the Mayor's third annual State of Homelessness Address. My name is Trent Rohr. I'm the director of the Human Services Agency, and we're the department that works with many other departments in a leadership role to uh, help end homelessness in San Francisco. I think all of you I see a lot of familiar faces, and all of you know that addressing the issue of homelessness in San Francisco in an effective manner re requires a lot of things. It requires innovation and the willingness to try new things, often in the face of criticism. It demands a comprehensive approach that requires partnership among city departments, different levels of government, the advocacy community, community-based organizations, the faith community, philanthropy. It, of course, demands resources to expand supportive housing, expand our outreach efforts, expand services. But I think most of all, it demands leadership, demands vision, and commitment at the highest level of city government. When you have a mayor who is passionate and learned on an issue, and a mayor who publicly states that ending homelessness is one of his top priorities for his administration, then the opportunity for us to work to improve the lives of thousands of people is there. I'm very pleased to introduce the man who provides this leadership, this vision, and this never-ending passion, and it paves the way for all of us to work together to end homelessness in San Francisco. Mayor Gavin Newsom. Thanks, Fred. Let's fix this thing. <laughs> we'll move this over. The casualness of the day. Thank you all very much uh, for indulging me yet again. And, and let me in advance apologize. I, I've caught whatever everybody else in town has. So I'm one of those guys that we can't even swallow right now. I've got a 100 plus degree temperature. And health commissioners are now very upset and they're moving to the back. <laughs> thought you had a good seat, didn't you? Um, yeah, I know. So uh, honestly, in advance, let me apologize for the lack of eloquence. But, uh, but do not mistake uh, my commitment to this issue and my passion uh, to uh, advance our efforts, collective efforts, on solving uh, and ending, not warehousing, uh, homelessness in San Francisco. I am very proud, you know, for the last three years we have come together each and every year, and we've marked what I would argue is our common purpose. Uh, we've celebrated that common purpose. Uh, and we each and every year have taken time, as we are today, to pause and reflect on where we've been, and most importantly, always, where we are going. Uh, we collectively, I think, need to recognize, and I hope every single one of you uh, can appreciate uh, my um, uh, admonition, that we're all in this together uh, and that I'm just the conduit to the changes we have been seeing. I hardly have all the answers, but as I say all of the time, I know I don't think that the answers are out there if we have the courage to find them and adopt new strategies and be accountable for real results. Uh, and I've always believed, as many others have, there's no basic inconsistency between ideals and realistic possibilities. But you've got to manifest those ideals. We can talk about the way the world should be as it relates to the issue of homelessness, but it's incumbent upon us to make it so, which means it's sharing that passion and action to turn things around. And that is indeed the spirit to which I come here again to give you a little bit of an update. Uh, give you some numbers that represent success, but conclude as we have the last two years uh, by putting a human face on that success in a meaningful and hopefully enlivening way. Uh, first, though, I want to do what I hadn't done in the last two years, uh, and that's take the time to not just acknowledge a few people that deserve to be acknowledged, but the many people that deserve to be acknowledged because simply stated, I wouldn't be here giving you what I would argue is some pretty good news had it not been for the collective efforts of people like, most importantly, Trent Rohr, who has just committed himself to this effort uh, with sincerity. Uh, and, and his entire team, you know, Jim Buick, uh, Dorothy Ennisman, uh, Joyce Crum, uh, Scott Walton, uh, Dariush, uh, Kayon, all of these folks that have directly been involved at the staff level, uh, passionately coordinating their efforts uh, to advance our efforts to solve and end homelessness in San Francisco deserve tremendous credit. But so too do our nonprofit leaders and community leaders. 
headed by the person that I am so proud of that holds me to an account, trust me, that none of you ever could, even my friends at the Coalition on the Homelessness, and that is Angela Aliotto, who runs our 10-year plan and chronic homelessness. She is a tough person to work for, let me assure you. Um, and her entire team and the entire planning council. And, uh, you know, it's nice. Uh, we have a new supervisor, Ed Jew, who actually has been working side by side with Angela on that 10-year planning council. So it's nice to have another champion that understands these issues on the Board of Supervisors as well. I want to acknowledge, and I'm not sure everyone's here. I see a few of you, uh, but they deserve, uh, I think, appropriate uh, credit. And that's, of course, Father John Hardin, who has been extraordinary on this, and he's our co-chair on that council. Uh, I'm proud of his work and example. Uh, Bobby uh, Rosenthal has been just fantastic as well in the Local Homeless Coordinating Council and, of course, doing incredible work on Veterans Affairs. That, more than ever, is going to be dominant in the next 5, 10, 15 years with the realities and travails that we are experiencing in Iraq and elsewhere. And, of course, our partners, Ken Reggio, uh, at, the, at ECS and Janet Goy at CATS with their outreach teams. Um, Randy Shaw, he loves to beat me up on Beyond Cron, uh, but he's doing great work, and I, I compliment him uh, on his efforts to become really our principal partner on the Care Not Cash initiative, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, and I think he shares the same value as it relates to our housing first strategy. And, of course, I want to also acknowledge the great work of our friends at the Department of Public Health, since I argue a cornerstone of our efforts is understanding the interrelationship between health in every aspect, physical and mental health, and the success of our efforts. And that's uh, Barbara Garcia, who has long been a counselor to me on so many issues. Been great. Uh, you got fans in here, Barbara, obviously. Uh, Mark Trotz, who has been just dynamite in our direct access to housing uh, program. Uh, Raj Parekh, uh, Raj has been, just, I mean, this is the hardest job in the city, this homeless outreach team. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Judith uh, Klein in, in a little bit because that, that Connect strategy is just mesmerizing. And someone who uh, now uh, receives at least a half dozen phone calls a day from me, and that's uh, Lieutenant Dave Lazar, who's uh, running our efforts uh, and our outreach uh, over there at the, at the police department. Look, uh, here's, and, and let's get into this. Uh, here's my philosophy, and I hope a lot of you in this room share it. Uh, and, and this is the core of the values that we're trying to advance as it relates to all these things I want to talk about. Uh, this is what I believe. Uh, you know, soup kitchens solve hunger, shelters solve sleep, but supportive, permanent supportive housing solve homelessness. That's the foundation of our efforts as it relates to advancing a real strategy to end chronic homelessness in San Francisco, permanent supportive housing. That's the distinction between warehousing a problem and solving a problem, a true housing first strategy that we know works. And here's why we know it. These numbers will bear this out. We have, in the last few years, established a framework with Angela's leadership and stewardship on the 10-year council to end chronic homelessness. We set a goal of 3,000 new supportive housing units, 1,500 leased, 1,500 owned. I want to tell you where we have gone in just the last few years, 1,798 units of supportive housing have gone online since we started this initiative. That's just in the last 36 or so months, not even 36 months. Forget the 10-year plan. We're well on our way, halfway to that goal, just within the first three years. Now, I understand the goal set forth a determination not just to provide least supportive housing units, but also owned supportive housing units. Again, 1,500 and 1,500. And to date, I acknowledge the vast majority, in fact, 1,495 of those 1,798 units have been leased. Only 303 are owned. But this is important to note. Already in the pre-development phase and the construction phase are over 1,207 units of housing, owned nonprofit housing, that is already in the pipeline. So we are going to reach our goals well within that 10-year plan. 
And just to emphasize, just in the last few years, that represents a 130%, more than double, 130% increase in the availability of supportive housing in San Francisco. That's not plain in the margins. That's order of magnitude change, though I recognize the order of magnitude change that still is needed, and we'll be talking a lot about that over the course of the next few uh, minutes, not hours. Um, we have now over 3,180 units, 3,182 units uh, of permanent supportive housing that are now available for single adults. And I know I'm not going to just be talking about single adults today. We're going to be talking about families as well. Uh, but that's something you should be very proud of. I don't know a city in America at a percentage, if you look at the percentage per capita, that does what we do. You should be very, very proud of that. Those are San Francisco values. That's what it's all about. Now, I want to lead into what has helped us advance these efforts. And, and I know every year I, I say this, and I said it last year and the year before, and, and, and it's hardly perfect. And I certainly am hardly perfect, quite the contrary. We make mistakes all the time, but I learn from those mistakes. We've made mistakes on our Care Not Cash initiative, but we've learned from those mistakes. We're still making mistakes, and we will learn from those mistakes. But rest assured, for all those doomsdayers that said it couldn't be done, can't be done, you're making all this up, the numbers don't add up, they don't make sense, they've been proven wrong. Simply stated, they've been proven wrong. We have now housed 1,726 people through this initiative. People said you couldn't do 500 said there's no way you can do your advertised 1,000, let alone 1,500, let alone now with an 87% decline in the caseload from 2,497 people, now down to 333 people, 1,726 people have been housed. 417 people have secured housing on their own. And this is a remarkable statistic, and it proves the point about this nonsense about service resistance. And I'll say nonsense about service resistance. I believe you can get to 99% of people. You just have to work hard. You just can't go one time, reach out, and they say, hey, everything's great. I'm ready for this housing. You've got to work hard. But eventually you can get there. 95% of these service-resistant folks are still in housing, be it under our initiative or they found housing and income, SSI income, et cetera, that have allowed them to advance on their own. 95% of the people are still housed since we've done that. I'm very, very proud of that initiative, but I get it. That's a very small part of the overall strategy and the overall challenge. An area that I committed to last year where I need to be held into account, that's why I do this, because it's good for accountability, and you've got to be honest with people. If you've done something, you say it. If you haven't, you've got to be equally as honest. I made a pledge uh, a number of years ago, many of you recall, to fulfill the commitment and the will of Angela Alioto and then the voters uh, when she offered an initiative to uh, direct that this city end the disgrace of allowing people 60 years and above to remain in temporary facilities and shelters living on cots and mats without the dignity of a key, a house, a door, and a lock. Uh, we made that pledge, and at the time there were 232 people that were 60 years and above in our shelter system. We immediately secured in four housing complexes at the Ramon, Mission Creek, Leland Civic Center residences over 254 housing units. 232 people at the time, 60 years and above, we secured 254 housing units. We went out and we were successful in getting uh, hundreds of people into permanent housing, but not everybody. And I recognize that today, um, as we did a census just in the last few days, that we still have 93 people that are seniors, 60 and above, that are living in our shelters, 35 that are older than 65. Where's the dignity and the humanity in that? The challenge is, now it's a 60% decline from what we stated. The challenge is a lot of people, to be quite candid, didn't want to take their income and put it towards housing. And they actually refused the housing units. At first, we had an overwhelming number of people that refused the housing units because of the substandard condition of housing that had been offered in the past. We actually started getting, doing, in essence, site tours. And we pulled people and we got them in advance and said, hey, we'll take a look at this unit. Does this work for you? And all of a sudden, that manifested and a lot more people taking up the applications and saying, no, that's a lot better than MSC South. And so we've had some success, but here's the challenge. It's a dynamic population. 
So even though we got those 254 units, it's more than the 232 people we had at the time. We have a lot more seniors entering in the shelter system. So my point is we have a lot more work to do on that. And I recognize that didn't stop just because we said it would stop with those 254 housing units. We must do more, and more we will do. In fact, we have, over the next 24 months, already set aside, I mentioned those 1,207 permanent new owned housing units that will be made available, 166 of those 1,207 are in the pipeline targeting people 60 years and above. So we think that's meaningful. Yes, that is meaningful, but also uh, we need to do more. But we do recognize uh, our commitment and our resolve to begin to address the spirit of that uh, stated uh, goal and your collective and individual expectations. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, a number of families, and I appreciate uh, Jenny and others from the Coalition on Homelessness uh, have been uh, really focused on this in the last few years because we've, I think, done a very good job enunciating and advancing our efforts on single adults. We have not done a good enough job on addressing the growing challenges of families, uh, particularly um, uh, the realities of people becoming younger and younger um, and families struggling uh, that are already housed or have three or four families literally living with them. You got, I went into a place in North Beach, I mean, right in the heart of, right on Columbus Avenue. Walked upstairs a few months ago, uh, and this is above some of the fanciest restaurants in San Francisco. You never in a million years expect to see what you saw inside right there. No, this one, Mission and Tenderloin, this is right there in the heart and soul of vibrancy and success. And I saw a room, the entire room was a mattress. You would walk right in the door and you step on a mattress. And the families were doing shifts 24 hours a day. There was no restroom. It was the down the hall upstairs because that restroom was broken. And you had down the hall literally just one crock pot uh, that was available for everyone living in the units. And you could barely breathe when you're in there. And you saw all these kids there struggling to stay asleep because they just had um, a bedspread uh, against the window, which hardly was keeping the light out. Uh, that's a reality that I'm sadly all too familiar with. Uh, and you are as well. In this, the wealthiest, the wealthiest cities and the wealthiest, the wealthiest states and the wealthiest of the wealthiest democracies in the world. How can this be? So I know we got to do a better job on this. Coalition and many of you, all of you, have always advanced the, the, the foundation and belief that we need to have the same housing first strategy as we do for single adults for our families as well. We are committed to doing that. The challenge is, uh, and this was the reason it was a very, I think, successful meeting, we had yesterday is I'm out there and I see people protesting me and saying, you're not doing, we need 1,507 new housing units. I'm saying, well, wait a second, I got over 1,500 units that I know are online, 1,543 online that are targeted for families. And I said, well, how is this a disconnect? I think they're simply wrong. And I said, I'm, how can I meet with people that are so wrong? Finally, we got that meeting and I realized I was wrong that we have 1,543 family units in the queue for families, but it's families earning 25 to 45% of area median income. Now, I thought that was fairly low. Those are people just with modest income, $20,000 to high 30s. What is a subset of that is only 300 of those 1,543 units are for people earning less than 20% of AMI, down to even zero income. And therein lies the gap that we have to focus, and I get this now, on looking to adjust, and this is going to be controversial, and I'm going to need your help, to adjust our AMI goals on those 1,543 housing units down. Now, that, that's something we have to do. But... But here's a challenge. The economics of these housing developments don't necessarily work if you do that. I mean, that's a, that's a big subsidy already, 25 to 45. So I'm going to be working uh, subsequent to that meeting with all of you to try to process a solution to this. I want to do it now. We did this, by the way, uh, when we had all of our other housing in the pipeline and we looked at what was available and we created supportive housing units within that, even though they said the financing was already done, you can't touch that program. We successfully did. So I think we successfully could do this as well. And one example that was offered is maybe we can do this. We can increase the area median income, say, to 60 percent for some of those units. So you go above 45 percent and then decrease 
many of the other units maybe down to 10 percent and still have the math, the economics work out. So those are some of the things we'll be working with Chinatown CDC and TNDC and uh, Mercy Housing, many of you in this room. Uh, so prepare uh, for those meetings over the next few weeks uh, and months because I think that's an area where we can be very helpful and successful. As we were this year in getting $3 million um, in our budget this year with the good work of the Board of Supervisors and others uh, to provide subsidies uh, these comprehensive eviction subsidy uh, dollars so that we can help with rental assistance and the like. That will help about $3 million, give or you could play in the margin, about 300 or so families will directly be helped by that. And by the way, that's the smartest strategy in the world. Keep people housed, particularly families, because you're not dealing with families, you're not dealing with dominant problems of substance abuse and mental illness. You're dealing with poverty. And the disproportionate number of people are minorities. The disproportionate number of people uh, have immigration status issues and concerns, and they have multiple kids. As I said, they're double or tripled up, and they're living in and out of the shelter system, uh, and, uh, and we can do a better job. So uh, we want to stabilize people before they enter into the system. And so you have my pledge and commitment, and you've got it. Uh, you don't have it in writing, but you, you got it on film, uh, to, uh, to advance more resources for more rental assistance in next year's budget. Uh, and very soon, by the way, that money is going to be distributed. You can't just say there's money and then it gets distributed. You've got to go through all these processes. Well, we're on the cusp of getting that money out the first quarter of next year, and a lot of families are going to immediately benefit from that, as well as the families in the medium and short term and long term that will benefit from our uh, housing pipeline. I recognize, though, that it's not just about supportive housing. That's one big part. But we've got to do a better job with our outreach. Uh, and I'm very proud, you know, and when I became mayor, we didn't have outreach teams. I joke and said we had in-reach teams. They were outreach on paper, but the reality was uh, their outreach uh, consisted of you coming to them and then them reaching out across the desk and helping you. Uh, that's in-reach, not outreach. And so I always believed, because I saw the budget analysis reports, everything, that we had all these outreach teams in the city. Uh, now, we had some folks, cats and others, doing good in the home, hot team, but it was limited. It was mostly reactive. It wasn't proactive. We had no proactive teams. We now have 15 people, but it's not enough. And so we're going to have to do more in next year's budget. I'm committed to doing more outreach, real outreach, to supplement the outreach we're doing primarily in the central city, the Tenderloin and the Mission and Soma areas around where we are here today. But I get it. Homelessness is constantly changing and evolving, and now we've got people being pushed out or at least believed to have been pushed out or feeling more comfortable going out into the subsequent outlying neighborhoods in San Francisco, not just the central city. So we've got to increase our outreach teams out into the sunset and the Richmond. Uh, we've got to reach, uh, do more in the Bayview Hunters Point community, uh, et cetera. We're committed to doing that. But look, let's also be uh, thankful. Those hot teams, the homeless outreach teams, have engaged over 530 people since we started, 420 are off the streets. We created a program just this year at Coronado Hotel. I think it was 62, 65 units for those outreach workers because their biggest frustration is they had someone who was ready to have a housing first work for them, but they didn't have housing units. Well, we actually set aside a great deal of money and said, this is your hotel workers to the workers, and they've got it, and they've housed, uh, they immediately I've gotten most folks in those, and now we need another 600 of them. I get it. Uh, but at least we started with those 65 units, uh, and, uh, and I'm very proud of that as well. As you know, we, we uh, recently this year started increasing the outreach teams to the Castro uh, area, where I see what you see every day as well and get that we've got a lot of work there. And we also did something that at the time everyone said couldn't be done, too controversial. It's going you know, to result in chaos and people... You know, it's the same narrative. You can write the script. You know, people were ready to protest and say it's just another crackdown. And the paper said it was a crackdown, which is just argumentative and sort of dismissive of uh, what I hope is a little bit more sensitivity in terms of our approach. Uh, that being said, we went into Golden Gate Park. And the reason we did it was not only to address the concerns, quite candidly, of all of us that are around there and the children that are playing, particularly on the, uh, the eastern end of the park, and, and deal with the encampments and deal with, you know, look, this be straight. There's shooting galleries up there. There are needles up there. The kids are running to get their soccer balls and they're stepping over feces. That's just not right. I don't think anyone thinks that's right. But it's wrong then to just kick them out and say, see you later. 
So we've done it more strategically this time. And I really want to applaud the Recreation and Park Department of Public Works, but notably the Health Department and Human Services and our homeless outreach teams. Uh, it's not mesmerizingly impressive. Not everyone has now been housed after decades, literally. I met a guy who said he's seen two mayors in his life in Golden Gate Park. One was Mayor Alioto and one was me. Now, do the math in terms of when Mayor Alioto was mayor. That's not a good sign. Uh, there was a gap in there where no one had connected with this gentleman, uh, an amazing guy as well, and, and that's the narrative of life, uh, pretty extraordinary person. Well, 83 people now have been housed since we initiated this. None would have been had we not done this and risked the criticism, but 83 human beings' lives have changed, and 35 people have been reunited with their friends and families as well. And I'm going to talk about that strategy so you understand what it is and for those that are cynical, what it is not. Let's clarify the record on that. So we're going to, we're going to do more with our homeless outreach things. We're going to increase in the budget number of people doing the outreach. We're going to continue our efforts in Golden Gate Park, make no mistake about it. Uh, and we've got a lot more work to do. Um, and we're going to help coordinate all this. You know, people talked about, I even talked about quality of life telephone hotline. And people say, that's mean-spirited. Uh, so, well, but at least people don't need, you know, you, where do you call if you've got someone you want to help who's on the sidewalks? Well, now we're going to have our 311 system. And we're actually organizing our 311 system, which will be online next year. And we're going to target uh, the efforts of our training to really focus on allowing people to have that portal to help make those calls and feel like we're going to be responsible in an appropriate way not criminalizing someone and arresting them, but truly helping them. So 311 call takers are being trained in that discipline, and this is going to be a big tool for people next year to help us be part of the solution. And speaking of being part of the solution, can you believe this? 17,000 human beings have contributed their time through Project Homeless Connect. I'm so proud of that. Seriously. 17,000. And... Uh, I remember we started it and there were people handing out flyers. It was like my state of the city speech. They were handing out flyers before they heard the speech, criticizing it. I love this town. It's great to be mayor. <laughs> and, uh, and so people were doing the same thing here. And, uh, and, and so they're saying it's just, it's all just another one of these mayors. It's all pomp and circumstance. It's, he wants to get reelected. I said, well, wait, I just got elected. I mean, can I do my job for a year before reelection? Um, and, uh, and we've now done 14 of these events. But here, here's why I'm so proud. We didn't know what we were doing at the time. And frankly, we still don't really know what we're doing. We kind of stumbled upon this. And it was frankly very selfish. It was started because I was so sick and tired of people saying they were so sick and tired about the homeless problem. They said, Mayor, what are you doing about it? And I was like, wait a second. That's impossible. That's too much weight on these shoulders. What are you doing about it? They said, fine, I'll help. And I said, they said, well, how do I, who, who do I call? And I'm like, well, I could call the Department of Public Health. <laughs> and I'd see that person four months later. said, I called, and it was busy signal. And no one ever called me back. They sent me this person, Bob, and he wasn't very nice. Uh, he said, call St. Anthony's uh, or Glide. Uh, and so really in a way to sort of reconcile that, I said, I need to come up with something and help connect the public, connect the city and our family to real solutions uh, in a very meaningful way, an impactful way. Well, we started with 250 people in that first round. And do you know that last week, our 14th Project Homeless Connect, which, by the way, is now replicated in 68 cities around this country and in three foreign countries. Puerto Rico has stolen the idea. We've stole, it's been stolen in Canada. And it just was stolen in Australia, which is great. So we're on, we want to change the world with this thing, but it's one little thing. But, you know, let me just tell you, from 250 people that helped a couple hundred homeless folks last week, um, these are amazing numbers. And, by the way, we got sophisticated data bank now. So these are not these sort of political made-up numbers. These are real numbers. 1,993 individuals were assisted just last week. 102 of them were families, incidentally. Let me just give you an idea of some of the things. I'll read through these quickly. 331 people received benefits on the spot, SSI, food stamps, or GA. 388 were screened for employment, and I want to talk about that in a minute. 
60 of them have uh, uh, interviews with Safeway. Safeway, to their credit, has really stepped up. Two were given immediate jobs. I know it's only two. You're saying, well, that's not good, and I get that. But two immediately were CVS Outdoor because they had the decency to come in and say, we're going to immediately help some folks. 267 got medical care. You know that they, we, we, we're going to advance the first was condemnation's history, universal health care strategy, but people at Project Homeless Connect now have primary care physicians that they get to see every six weeks, and the doctors come in and say, hey, Jonathan, did you go to that clinic? Uh, check, you know, I checked on you. You didn't show up. How are your meds, and et cetera? And they do these checkups, subsequent checkups. 267 people took advantage of that. 212 got legal assistance. See, we did it a year ago. We didn't have legal assistance. Boy, that's the biggest line outside of the DMV uh, that's there as well. Uh, 350 ran out again of eyeglasses, uh, lens crafters, to their credit. Uh, 1,488 eye glasses they've given out since we started this. 150 got flu shots, commissioners. That's important. 101 are in methadone. And one of the biggest areas of success from my perspective is we reconciled with our departments the realities of our methadone treatment and the difficulty navigating them because of Project Homeless Connect. It actually has helped us manage and change our approach to dealing with access because we had to admit some of our failures in terms of the difficulty of accessing, and that's something that I'm very proud of. 118, now we got dentists there. So not only you get your feet washed and massaged and you have podiatrists, uh, beautiful music, uh, getting your flu shot, get some assistance, et cetera, but now you also get some dental care in addition to haircuts, which we added last time. So we have a couple hundred folks got haircuts. And, uh, and most importantly, you're saying, well, what about the thing that really matters, housing? Um, and shelter. We got 132 people last week in the stabilization units and, and housing. And, and, and something else, 1,600 people volunteered just last week. And amazing, real people that want to make a difference. Uh, so again, I wanted to recognize, I talked about Judith earlier. Judith Klain, congratulations on Project Homeless Connect. We should be proud of it, very proud of it. Homeward Bound. People said, how dare you? You're just a typical mayor. Out of sight, out of mind, they said. Mean-spirited, I told you so when you said you voted for him. I voted against him. I'm not responsible. See, he reverted to the old bait-and-switch. He talked about housing, but he's kicking people out by giving them Greyhound bus tickets. That's how we started Homeward Bound. But it's interesting. When we started Homeward Bound, uh, we actually were responding uh, to uh, an admonition that came uh, from our 10-year council that said, the 10-year plan said the following, city must expand out-of-region reunification resources to all persons experiencing homelessness. So we responded to that call in the 10-year plan, and we realized that it's probably more mean-spirited that someone can't get back to their friends and family that are out on the sidewalks, then actually giving them the tools and the ability to do it. It averages about $147 per client to do that. Well, how do people have that kind of money when they're barely making ends meet and they're out on the sidewalks? And so we had to deal with taking a risk there. But we wanted to do it in a sensitive way. Don't get me wrong. We've done that well, but hardly perfectly. And I know a lot of you said, Hi, I found someone that didn't have someone on the other end. You said they always will have someone on the other end. You're always going to find those exceptions. I would argue they're the exceptions. The vast majority have been success stories. And to um, the credit of uh, Kevin Fagan, uh, he went in, a uh, reporter for the Cron, and he randomly picked some folks, and he traveled to those cities to visit them. And you saw some just magnificent changes. The one woman in Florida was out on South Van Ness, lost her teeth, and you saw this beautiful woman on the front page of the paper. And that was because of this effort to reunify her with her family had lost touch with her and given up hope. Uh, I'm proud of this effort. 1,788 human beings that did not have the ability to reunify have been reunified with their friends and family in all 48 states. Think about that. Think about that. So when you talk about the problem of homelessness in San Francisco, think about that fact. All 48 states. This is a national challenge. It is so much bigger than the 47 and a half square miles in this city. And as soon as we house one person, we've got two or three others that are coming in. And I think these numbers bear that out. So good enough never is. I get that. That's why we have to keep 
moving forward, and we will continue to move forward with that program. Look, since we started, 4,795 human beings are no longer out on the sidewalks and streets in San Francisco. That ain't bad. 4,795 people are now off the streets since we started. That's good. This is where we're going to get into discussion that's always a little bit more controversial because we talk about privileges, we talk about rights, but now we've got to talk about obligations, talk about responsibility. It's a reciprocal relationship. And I get what everyone else gets, and that is we are failing to deal with our chronic street population. We're failing to address chronic inebriation. We're failing to address chronic behavioral health issues, people with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, paranoia, many duly diagnosed using drugs and alcohol. We're failing to deal broadly with our substance abuse challenges. I see the same people you see every single day. The difference is when I wake up in the morning and I shave, I look back in the mirror and I go, ooh, I have got to be responsible to deal with this. I'm the one that you're going to look to to say, well, the mayor hadn't done enough. So it, again, is a great weight. Our current system for dealing with quality of life is, from my perspective, abjectly ineffective. It is. It's ineffective for everybody. It's ineffective for you. It's ineffective for the person that you have to step over on the street corner. Last thing, I agree with you. I don't want to have the police department come in and cite that person who's got a severe chronic uh, 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 inebriate problem. At the same time, I need to do something to help this person that may not want to help him or herself. And we can continue to do what we've done and get what we've got. And it's just not good enough to watch someone like Paul Sanchez, who's a success story, who we called the million dollar man who was picked up by an ambulance 52 times in one calendar year. And he goes through this revolving door. We had one person, Chief Joanne Hayes White told me, one person was picked up by an ambulance and brought to San Francisco General Hospital, I kid you not, true story, three times in one 24 hour period. How is that a successful policy for that person or for you as the taxpayers? All that money that could be used to house people, families and seniors, that is being used, sucked up, because we can't effectively address the problem. You know, it's interesting. The Board of Supervisors had an interesting San Francisco legislative analyst report done, said a central difficulty, this is the board's legend, central difficulty surrounding the effective processing of quality of life law violators is the limited extent to which the legal system provides a disincentive for, prevent, uh, for potential offenders. So you've got a revolving door. You lose and the individuals out in the street lose. They become statistics. One cold night, because they didn't get that health care that they needed, all of a sudden they succumb to the elements. And then we lament and we have a candlelight visual out there. But we're not solving the problem. We're lamenting about it. And frankly, I think exacerbating it by idealizing that reality. We've got to do things differently. Now, cities across this country are dramatically changing their approach to how they deal, yes, with that criminal justice system to compassionately address this issue. And we must do the same. We just had a delegation, and I'm proud of this, the public defender, the courts, the DA, our police department, health department, human services department, all of them working together, big delegation, with the Center for Court Innovation to begin to address this issue and this disconnect. I don't think it's great that someone is still on the sidewalks because we're just throwing all these citations out and saying go back out on the sidewalk. That's not helping people. We need to redirect real compassion and real focus to real results. This Center for Accord Innovation has put together a list of best practices. They actually traveled together to see one of them uh, this last week about a new community court initiative that we want to implement here in San Francisco that will be accountable for results and really helping people turn their lives around. We're going to focus. Can't do everything, but can't do anything. So we got to focus. We're going to focus on chronic public inebriance, serial inebriance first. And we're going to do not dissimilarly what cities, and there are a lot of best practices, but one of them that's very interesting, and it's not San Francisco. So I know when I read a blog, they'll say the mayor brought up San Diego, but... I'll tell you about that program, they'll say to each other in that blog. It's an outrage. Well, we get that. We're not naive. There's certain things that work in San Diego, certain things that are not about who we are in San Francisco. So we augment. So I'm not being literal. I'm being figurative. 
about a program they established where they did a census, 750 people were out in their sidewalks in 2000 and in 2000 that were chronic public inebriants. They just did a new census, 175. So you went from 750 to 175. And they do these graduations every month of people whose lives have completely changed. It is, you got to see this to believe it. It's a wonderful thing. It's changed people's lives. They have substantially reduced the number of chronic public inebriants that have gone into the emergency medical system, which is substantially reduced costs, which they've been able to redirect, and they're turning people's lives around. That's just one example of many that we've looked at. And so we're going to incorporate this into this new community court initiative, again, focusing on alcohol abuse, chronic inebriation. We are going to thank you. Someone likes it. I, I, think it's, I think it's long overdue. And here's why we're focusing on, on chronic inebriates, because we've been doing a good job on this issue. Not a great job. We've got to do better. We started that sobriety center, the sobering center, late 2003. I was very involved in that. We put a task force together, worked with people from all the ideological stripes, and we actually came up with consensus to put this thing together. And it's been a big success. Why has it been so successful? Because last year we had 1,750 people, unduplicated people, that utilized this service as a bridge between the emergency room and the opportunity to get intermediate care in a medical-focused environment. But we have seen a 28% decline in that last year. And I think it's suggestive of the fact that we have concurrently expanded supportive housing and stabilized people so that we can then begin to deal with their underlying issues. So we're having some success. It's hardly perfect. We need to do more, but we're having some success with this program. So that's why I want to build on that and focus again first on this community court model focused on chronic inebriants and high-end users. But we also need to do something that other cities are doing. Washington State has done it very effectively. Some other cities have as well. We've got to focus. I just think it's wrong. It's immoral for a liquor store owner. And I, and I used to I started a few wine stores, so I get this intimately. To open up at 6 in the morning and have someone who's waiting outside get a bottle of night train or something like that, who's using their, what's remaining of their GA check or their page, whatever it is, I don't think that's right. It's just, putting, it's just saying, here's your revolver, here's a couple of bullets, and here you go. So how, how, why is it that we allow, we got 100 off-sale liquor stores in the Tenderloin, 100 convenience and necessity are the foundations to open a, a liquor store. There are a lot of good operators, and I think they'll do the right thing, but they need to be asked. So we want to create an alcohol impact area starting in the Tenderloin. And we want to work on a good neighbor policy with these liquor store owners so that they will agree to limit alcohol sales. Let's just start 6 in the morning till 9 in the morning. Who can argue that? Let's not start drinking until 9 a.m. It's that difficult for people that have, I mean, people are shaking, right? I mean, they're self-medicating. Let's limit the type of alcohol it's sold. I know that they got their license without restrictions years and years ago, but let's do some self-imposed restrictions on the sale of single containers with high alcohol content. Those are just examples. We've already done outreach. I actually went and did it myself with these owners. Uh, I got a great response. Maybe it's just because I did it and they were trying to be nice uh, to me. But we are going to process this and our goal is by March to establish this good neighbor policy uh, in this new alcohol impact area, uh, working with the ABC and the health department uh, to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about this because it also builds on something else and I'm almost done. I said it's usually an hour, so we're, we've got 15 minutes. Um, we did something this year that was very – I was listening to one of those right-wing talk shows the other day. Man. Um, this guy was going off about our program, national radio show, condemning our effort to do this public inebriant housing we started with HUD this year, where we actually are allowing people – you don't have to be clean and sober to get this housing. Working with our sobriety center, we link people with chronic 
public inebriation, and we give them priority for housing. How would you people say, well, wait, you've got you to clean up before I give you... And we're saying we've got to deal with reality. These people are ending up in our emergency rooms. We are paying the price. Why don't we pay the price on the front end? And let's help turn these people around with aggressive and heavy case management. See, you can still use and abuse, but you have to agree to heavy case management, and we will begin to stabilize you in these housing units. 62 units. This is a controversial program. Kind of snuck in on the radio. You didn't read a lot about this in, in San Francisco. You read about, you know, my hair or something, but you didn't read about this um, or who I was dating. Unbelievable. Um, Apparently, a lot of you did read about who I was dating. <laughs> uh, this, um, this program was modeled after a program in Minneapolis, which was quite successful. Again, we don't have all the answers, but the answers are out there. We just have to have the courage to go find them and adopt them in our unique ways that make them San Franciscan. So we're going to expand that model as well. And then we're going to expand with this new community court. And by the way, we're putting together a task force. And I want to compliment her. She's not here. Chris Cunney's here. The DA, she's been spectacular on this, Kamala Harris. She gets it. And she actually sent someone out on our last trip uh, from her office to begin to do this in the right way. But she gets what I get. We also are very proud of our courts. Because a lot of time we have ideas, DA, public, even the public defender. I mean, they don't want to see people going in and out and failing. But the courts need to be our partners, and they're committed as well. So this is a very exciting time in terms of dealing with quality of life and, again, talking about that system of reciprocity and accountability, opportunity, responsibility. We will provide the incentives and the opportunity, but all of us need to be responsible. We'll meet you where you are. That's what this city is all about. Even if you're chronic inebriate, we'll meet you where you are, but you've got to agree to certain parameters. And we want people to be held into account, all of us, for success and for outcomes. That's the spirit to where we want to go next. And I'm very enthusiastic about where we're going. I'm very proud where we've been. And I, uh, and I, I want you to know that uh, I'd like to say this. Uh, because we're picking up steam, picking up momentum. You know, the days of heavy division, they're not behind us. Certainly not. But fact is, we're working together better than I think we have in a long time. We get that shelter is not the answer. I also get you can't just cut off all the shelters and then throw people out in the street. You've got to have the housing before you have the shelter. I get that. But make no mistake... We are going to get involved in a controversial discussion in the next few weeks. I don't believe we should be spending general fund money on expanding shelters right now in San Francisco. I think we should be spending general fund money to expand housing in San Francisco. And so this is a tough one. And I got my mediator here, Angela Aliotto, who's going to help me with one of these. And it's not going to be easy. But, but you know, good. Healthy controversy is the hallmark of healthy change. And so... We're hardly going to always agree on everything, but I think we agree on some fundamentals and some principles. And those principles, and we'll end with this, uh, these principles have been advanced now with a narrative that's a little different than statistics and numbers uh, and the rhetoric from an elected official. And that is uh, the opportunity for me to do what I just love doing the last few years, and that's introduce you to some of the people you guys have helped introduce you to some of the people whose lives have dramatically changed because you had the courage to change the way you were doing things. And we talk about pattern interrupts. We've interrupt, interrupted their patterns, and we've changed the narrative of their lives. And at the end of the day, that's what life is all about. Everyone's got a story, and our job is to make someone's story a little bit better. That's, for me, the purpose of life. And that's the purpose, again, that I think unites all of us, regardless of our ideological perspective. So here, so here are six people. Are we all here? Everybody came here. All right. I got nine minutes, and we got six people. Michael Wilson. Where are you, Michael? Okay. Michael was the first person that was housed into a stabilization unit when we started our efforts in Golden Gate Park. Uh, Michael used to own um, or was owned his own business 
in the constructions trade. He was a, a, a dry wall taper. For many, many years, he also owned his own home. After losing his business, he eventually lost his home. Michael lived in a homeless encampment in Golden Gate Park for the last decade. Can you imagine? Nine years, to be precise. Our homeless outreach staff approached him uh, just a few months ago, September, and asked if he would like some housing and assistance. Michael immediately and gladly said, okay. He's now in a stabilization unit at the Coronado. He's receiving pays benefits, and he'll soon, and this is most important for me, soon be looking to become self-sufficient again and looking for work. And he plans to do that through an initiative, again, I'm so proud of, called City Build, working with Chris Iglesias. So this is what it's all about. Michael, thank you for being here. And keep it up. And we'll be watching. We'll be watching. Julie Mann. Julie, right next to Michael. You ready for this? Julie grew up in Virginia, and she came to San Francisco about a decade and a half ago. She fell in love with the city, uh, and she wanted to live here. She was unable to get a job, however, when she came out here 14 years ago and became homeless. She continued to look for work, but being homeless made it impossible for her to get a job. Imagine trying to find a job if you're out living on the streets and in our shelters. Julie spent the last 14 years in Bayview, Hunters Point, in an encampment out in Bayview. 14 years. Again, our homeless outreach workers approached Julie a little bit ago, a while ago, uh, and she had no interest in getting help. She said, you know, tough luck. Kind of like it out here. Or, I don't like it, but I don't like you. <laughs> I'm not sure. You, Julie never talked like that. She was more sensitive. But she basically was suspicious about our services and said that what we were offering wasn't going to necessarily work for her where she was at the time. Our outreach staff didn't give up. Constancy. Constancy. Never give up. We came back, and in the spring of this year, an officer, see, we have good police officers, actually went out, Sue Levin from SFPD and their outreach unit, brought Julie to Project Homeless Connect. So at least try this thing. Worst case, you, you know, get a massage. And she accepted our services. She's now receiving GA and Medi-Cal benefits. Uh, we're helping her apply for SSI. She's staying at the Warfield, and next week she has an interview, and I hope this helps you with that interview. I imagine it does by being here today, um, to get a supportive housing uh, unit in a building where we expect she will be moving very, very soon. Fourteen years in Bayview. Now she's going to get a permanent supportive housing unit. Thank you for being here, Julie. Awesome. When people tell you you cannot solve homelessness, remind them of Julie and Michael, as well as Stanley. Stanley, where are you? Where's Stanley? Here's Stanley. He grew up in San Francisco, native son. Joined the Army the year of my birth, 1967. He went to Vietnam. When he came back, he came back like so many others with post-traumatic stress. He also had to take care of his ill father for a number of years. His father sadly passed away. And Stanley, combination of both experiences, uh, became homeless. Uh, he started, though, living out often in his car. After years and years of being homeless, he came into our CAP office, County Adult Assistance Program, uh, our office. He signed up for GA, and with the help of Kevin Heaney and our SSI advocacy staff, he applied finally for SSI, where he now currently has not only the SSI benefits, but he's living in the Pierre Hotel, no longer in his car. And guess what he loves to do? He loves restoring now old cars. How's that for a turnaround? Stanley, thank you so much. And congratulations. Thank you. We have three more people that make all this worth it. Barry Bernard. There's Barry right there. Barry was homeless and has been homeless since 1979 as a result of some issues um, with substance abuse. Um, ben, we all know Ben from our homeless outreach team, has been working, uh, been working with Barry for a long time to engage him in service. And Ben said, Barry, if you do your part, then we'll do our part. Barry went finally into treatment and fulfilled his one-year commitment 
at one of my favorite programs at Friendship House. He called Ben and said, I did my part. Ben, now you've got to do yours. Ben helped him sign up for pays and eventually got him into the Alder Hotel through that Care Not Cash initiative. Friendship House now has hired, I love these stories, has hired Barry on a part-time basis and now is developing into a full-time job. He's employed, uh, this is great, as a security guard and an assistant building manager. He no longer receives pays because he's now working full-time and paying his own rent. Barry, congratulations. And thank you. It's great. It's great. See someone out in the streets since 1979 with drug and alcohol addictions, and a year later, working full-time on his own. Bill Mock. Bill, right next to Barry. Nebraska. Cornhuskers, right? Grew up in Nebraska and moved to San Francisco in 1983. He was a painter at the time and lived in what he called a pretty fancy apartment. Slowly, he began using alcohol and then slipped over into some other substances, which got him a little bit in trouble with our criminal justice system. He eventually lost everything, and Bill spent the following years homeless, either on our streets or housed in our prison system. After many years of this type of life, Bill was approached again by our homeless outreach teams that didn't exist three years ago who helped him get into supportive housing and access to a quality outpatient substance abuse treatment program. Now, you guys want to have a good holiday season, but I think Bill's going to have a better one because next week, Bill will be moving back into his own apartment at the Plaza Hotel. Bill, congratulations. And thank you. Happy holidays. It's great. Rita Hamlet. Where are you, Rita? Are you so happy in the second row? She's been smiling the whole time. Rita is a single mother of two. I don't know how you do that. I complain about my job. Uh, obviously, she's raising those two children. Uh, she's had some health, health issues uh, for the last few years, exacerbated uh, or exacerbating um, uh, things so much so that, that she uh, became homeless. She moved into San Francisco uh, for hopes of a better life with her kids. However, things didn't change radically. She remained homeless. In 2004, she went to Compass um, for some help. With the help of the staff from Connecting Point, Rita and her children finally moved into a shelter, and then they were able to move into some temporary housing, and then eventually into some transitional housing, different kind of continuum here. Richmond Hills Family Center. You guys are aware of Richmond Hills Family Center. Now she's a driver for home away from homelessness. She and her children are all doing great, and you can just tell because of that big smile. And Rita found out just this week that tomorrow, Friday, she's going to pick up her kids, or her keys, and her kids, and she's got. Don't forget the kids. I know you got the keys. And, and I imagine, yeah, you may just be running right over them to get into her new three-bedroom townhouse because of the work of Compass and Connecting Point. Rita, thank you very much. See, I told you she's smiling. So, guys, that's the state of homelessness. And I always like to end with success stories. Uh, but there are thousands of Rita's out there. There's thousands of Michael's and others that we have a moral, ethical obligation to help. I get that, and I know you get that. You wouldn't be here today. We're not always going to agree on everything. But one thing I think we can all agree on is our collective purpose to try to end the real disgrace of homelessness, not only in our city, but lead by example for the state and the rest of the nation. I am proud of the progress we have made and I will conclude by saying this. The best is yet to come. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you for being out here today, all the commissioners as well.